They're on. Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. One thing I've realized and been humbled by is the opportunity that has been given to me to gain knowledge and wisdom from the musicians whose tales I share with people in all parts of the world via the Internet. Call it mass distance education, if you will. I have the opportunity to talk with individuals who have been on this earth longer than myself, have experienced societal shifts, and have invented and reinvented themselves in different musical settings in different parts of the country. As a rogue journalist, I'm searching for that fine line of connection from mind to body to soul. That's where the spirit emerges and what my whole show is about, how to create spiritual music. Edgar Winter, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you, Jake. I'm ready to rock and roll. And that is a beautiful introduction. I can tell right now I'm going to be preaching to the choir. Well, you know what, that's exactly where I wanted to start because I was, I I don't try to do too much research in advance, but I I wanted to ask you about if you, you and your brother, if you had an exposure to any kind of sanctified churches uh, in, in Texas or in Florida growing up. Well, uh, yes. Uh, my mother was uh, Baptist, but she uh, uh, she studied the Bible and uh, uh, had some knowledge of Greek and Aramaic. She had a Bible circle, you know, that that would come over. My dad went to the Episcopal Church, and I went with him because they had this beautiful Olean Skinner pipe organ. That just <laughs> just put me into heaven, and uh, he sang in the choir as well. But uh, when you're talking about, uh, uh, if you think rock and roll is high energy, if if you've never been to one of those Pentecostal tent revivals, that's what I'm talking um, about, my brother. That is what I'm talking about. Yeah, you, 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 you can you talk about the first time you rolled up on one of those tents? Yeah, uh, we used to sneak in to those uh, to those tents, and it was just the most amazing, uh, transformative uh, experience that uh, that I've ever had uh, religiously. Certainly, in terms, it's so totally different. Like the Episcopal Church, uh, it has a, a beauty of solemnity, and and uh, but uh, and. And I love the church hymns, you know, the sort of uh, European classical influence that exists in that music. But when you go into one of those tent revivals, those people are just uh, so totally in, uh, like, swept away in rapture. And uh, to me, that's really what music is is all about, and I, I have a few stories along those lines. But, you know, that's part of, of what uh, the band, my first R&B band, White Trash, uh, Ray Charles, to me, like, Ray is probably my first and foremost musical influence. And, you know, my brother Johnny and I grew up playing music together. Uh, we started when I was just six years old uh our whole family was musical my 
dad played uh, guitar, banjo. He played alto sax in a swing band in his youth. Wow. And uh, had a beautiful tenor voice. He mm. sang in the choir. He had a barbershop quartet that would come over to the house and uh, rehearse and sing. And my mother played beautiful classical piano. Uh, grandfather played fiddle, violin, and great-granddad played trumpet. And music was just such a part of our household. Uh, uh, I thought everybody, like my dad showed us our first chords on ukuleles uh, when, I was saying, when I was around six years old. And uh, then uh, Johnny, of course, uh, graduated to guitar, and I said, well, I'll play everything else. <laughs> so I, I played bass for a while, and then drums, and then electric pianos came out, uh, which I remember beating my hands bloody on those old upright pianos. You'd try to put a mic in it, and, and it would always feed back. And, and then, oh, wow, I got an amp. I can turn it up. <laughs> you know, I, I, this is really important, though. Like, your folks... Um, when you the, they were open minded enough, when you were really experienced the holy rollers, I, I would love you to talk about because when I listen to the the first White Trash album, it's just like it is. I feel like I'm in uh, could have been O.C. Smith's church or you know uh, Aretha Franklin's C.L. Franklin's church. I mean, it's deep and it's clear that you were. You know, because like I remember interviewing Cyril Neville, you know, the, from the Neville brothers, and he would go, the, his parents, I forget what denomination, but he'd go and the and the pastor was talking in Latin. It didn't make any sense to him. But then he'd go to the spirit church, the Israelite spirit church, and all he'd be hearing is drums coming out of there. And that rhythm is what got him. And I mean, there were blind dudes playing dobros. I, I would love you to put me inside one of these sanctified settings? And more importantly, were your parents open to the idea of you guys playing black uh, blues devil music? Yeah, uh, they were pretty broad-minded. And uh, I don't remember if if we were sneaking into those. I don't know that we discussed uh, that specific aspect of it, but... Definitely the blues was something that we did discuss. And yes. my dad, he understood blues, you know. And, he did. Uh, he, he did. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. He 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 understood it. Uh and uh they were uh they were broad minded enough to allow us to play uh that music. Uh we I remember I played in a club when I was uh what, 11, 11 or 12, uh, there was a club called Tom's Fish Camp. And, the, you know, it had, like, uh, uh, the people that owned it, Tom and Tiny, and uh, Tiny was a big 250-pound woman, and they took <laughs> fish, you know, and, and sawdust on the floor. I love it, dude, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and they, uh, 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 that was, I remember we made... Uh, eight dollars a night and there were four of us 32 bucks a night and and uh to me that was just like i couldn't believe it i was there on on a little stage you know playing music and watching people drinking dancing and it it was just like wow i'm actually 
you know, you're contributing. You're contributing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Grown up social experience that was so far beyond you know anything I could imagine, and uh, it. Uh, so I guess we were we were lucky in that sense, but. As far as the spiritual, like in those Pentecostal tent revivals, uh, people would writhe around. They would speak in tongues. Mm -hmm. They they did all kinds of uh, things, inexplicable, you know, things that uh, were totally alien to me, but fascinating. Uh, I just, uh, you know, it, it gave me a whole different sense of uh and and when you talk about i think gospel is probably the least understood and you know overlooked element in music uh today i, like I completely agree continue i would like you to talk about why you think that is but continue well i the whole style of uh rock and roll singing is derived from the great preacher gospel screaming singers you know to me that's that's where it came from and uh uh and i don't you know there's little credit and also you know there's sort of that schism between gospel and blues to me they're they're related uh but you know the the gospel and blues people most of the blues guys a lot of them you know came from church and you know they they know it and yet they still there still seems to be that unnecessary division but i always think of gospel as the flip side of the blues i love it dude i you know and then yeah people but there was that division because of all the people that were saying oh that's the devil's music and this that and the other when in fact it's all you know it's all, kind of all music you know yeah, it, uh, I, divisions in music is, is something I never understood why, uh, like, uh, all of these separate genres, to me, it seemed almost like musical segregation. It's like, okay, all you cowboys will play the country and all you black people will play the blues and then you rebellious kind of intellectual jazz <laughs> people yeah. and then uh, all the conservative people have your classical music. And I always have seen it more as a, uh, a promotional device employed by record companies that want to... Uh, they want to promote and target a very specific audience and separating music like that, you know, allows them to do that. And I always have flown in the face of that and, and felt like, you know, why music is all beautiful. And I just happen to be one of those guys. I know a lot of people like, uh, my brother Johnny was a blues purist. He loved the blues and very specifically he loved that uh, uh, that country style acoustic uh, Delta blues sure. was his, was his favorite uh, was his favorite style. He's a great electric rock guitarist as well. But uh, you know, I've always enjoyed like people like Sting, you know, who's great uh, pop. Uh, sure, yeah, absolutely. Singer, but, has a jazz sensibility, or somebody like Bruce Hornsby. That, mm -hmm. uh, uh, he's really a fluid uh, jazz soloist in a sense, but his music retains that 
sincerity and simplicity of country music, you know. It's always been, we've always been segregated. It's so beautiful, although unfortunate, to hear you talk about um, the segregation of music. I mean, I was born in 78, so, but to me it seems like, um, do you believe, like, early on, especially uh, the first incarnation of the Edgar Winter group, I mean, do you feel like the Bean Counters left you alone at that time, like to make your own music. I, I remember talking to John Densmore from The Doors, and he was like, when he when they were on Electra, it was kind of a boutique label, but the bean counters and the lawyers and the people like that, they, they were like, well, we're making dough, so let's just let these guys do what they're, we don't understand what they're doing, but let them do it. And then all of a sudden, you know, fast forward to the mid-late 70s, all of a sudden the efficiency model comes in and, you know, all these cats want people to play straight beats, like the last hit record. And I just wonder when you felt, if at all, in your career, if you felt that that full creative freedom in the studio. Well, I just exercised that freedom. And that was the only... Uh, first of all, let me uh, let's talk about the blues just for a second. Go ahead, Ben. Uh, uh, and... Uh, of course, I have my, you know, my tribute album that I did to my all-time hero, my brother, Johnny mm. Winter. And uh, we will get around to talking uh, about that. Absolutely. But I think people have a tendency, to me, there are, uh, uh, we all have a tendency to think that the time in which we came up was somehow special. But I really do believe that there were two golden eras in music like the 40s and 50s for big band jazz and swing and and the 60s and 70s for rock. And to me, those are unparalleled. And uh, the reason being that there there was a relative degree of freedom uh, and and people were exercising that freedom regardless of of what was going on. Uh, And that's, that's the way I felt about music. But I think that people, to me, like, Blues is the great granddaddy of all, like, American music. It, it developed into ragtime and Dixieland mm. and then mm. into uh, swing and modern jazz and then found, you know, found its way into R&B and gospel and, uh, and finally into rock and roll. And people have a tendency to think of blues as something old, you know, that's, that's already happened, uh, either forgetting or not realizing that it continues to exert this profound influence over all forms of every form of popular music that you hear today. Uh, And I was doing this interview once, and and uh, we were going along, and this guy all of a sudden says, uh, in ten words or less, uh, define the blues. <laughs> oh. And I said, uh, oh, you can you can have the blues, you can sing the blues, but as far as defining the blues, the, the blues defines itself. Uh, it, and trying to talk about music is like trying to describe a color or explain a scent. You you really uh, can't. It really can't be done. But finally, 
uh, I came up with uh, the blues is transforming suffering into joy. That's and less than ten words. That's pretty darn good. That's seven words. You oh. got three words left over. Damn. And uh, you, you know, and that's that's like what it's done for me in my life, and and what I would hope it it would do for others. There's something about the blues, even though like, uh, yeah, there's suffering uh, in life, and a lot of the you know my baby done left me, I lost my job, right. my house burned down, and the dog died, and what country music <laughs> is like that too. But somehow when you hear like you hear somebody saying like. Nobody loves me but my mother, and she could be jiving too. You know, you just put the smile on your face to be able to sing, to transform that suffering into a joyful song is what is meaningful about, uh, you know, about the blues. So, and, you know, if you, you, that could just as easily apply to Zen. So, like Zen, meditation, mindfulness, uh, all the. He, you know, uh, transforming suffering into joy is just as good a description for that. Uh, so. Edgar, it's, I, it's so such an honor to hear your voice, man. I mean, I, I wanted to, someone kept bringing me back to this today, and but you can riff on it any way you want. I mean, Alan Toussaint, Earl Palmer, Sonny Rollins, John Coltrane, Cannonball, all those cats, uh, before they you know, sort of, well, at least Train and Can and Sonny, those guys were all walking the bar, playing R&B, honking, before they got into bebop. Uh, And I just wanted to know if you had an opportunity to play on anything close to what would be considered a chitlin circuit, and if, in fact, um, what you would say about the idea of like, for instance, Coltrane, I mean, that guy walked the bar, uh, Cannon walked the bar, they were honking, playing very simple music, then it went to being more complex music with this language of bebop, whatever that is. I just wonder what if you could talk about your own evolution um, on a ch- any kind of chitlin circuit exposure, and then also the idea of just thinking about music going from the simple, and then going from the simple to the complex, and if that has worked for you in your life? Because I, I mean, when I watch your video, when I watch some of the early, uh, Edgar winter, I mean, it's about as stretched out as a rock group could get. I mean, it's really freaking hip and you know, cause I'm a jazz cat to the core, but I, every time I watch you, you want, you're leaving the head of the tune and you're going for it. And, and so I just, you can riff on that any way you want. Yeah, well, that's, uh, yeah, that is uh, my love. Cannonball was my man. I knew it. I knew it. Cannon was in my heart all day today, man. He's just, you know, like Charlie Parker was the innovator, and he was certainly the genius. Mm. And like he uh, and Dizzy and Monk, you know, uh, they kind of started, they started the whole thing, uh, but... Uh, I just love Cannonball because he has the that bluesy exactly lyric, exactly that bluesy lyrical you know uh, aspect to like he can play a million notes but once in a while uh, he'll just lay down one of those just one of those great blues licks 
and he he does it so tastefully and and just uh that that's you know i i love that fusion in there and i uh well um did you get to see I, like I, did you see for, any for yeah, me yeah. Uh, like i love i love i love jazz uh and uh, always have and always will uh i when i i think part of when Johnny and I started out playing together, uh, there that it's that blues influence to me that that kind of pulls all of that music together mm-hmm. in a sense. And you know, uh, I'm more of a bluesy jazz guy than a, than a fusion guy, but I do believe that uh, I don't know how to talk about this. It like. Johnny and I had completely different, we came to music in, from completely different perspectives. Uh, I just, I should, since we're going to talk about Brother Johnny, but back as far as, as I can remember, Johnny was going to be a star. And he, like, he watched Bandstand, and he read all the magazines, and he had a huge record collection, and he knew every, who played on every record. And, uh, and he, uh, you know that uh, he was Johnny Cool Daddy Winner with the pompadour and the shades, yeah, and I the did. cars I did. I and the did. girls, and <laughs> like I was the quiet kid that played all the instruments. So there was uh, never any sibling rivalry because Johnny loved the spotlight, and I, I was quite content to avoid it whenever possible. Fascinating. So Fascinating. I was sort of like. Uh, when we started to try to put our bands together, uh, I mentioned, you know, coming to such a musical household, like it was just such a rude awakening. Like, uh, uh, we'd go to our friends, what, your daddy didn't show you no chords or nothing? <laughs> it was like, you know, uh, I said, oh, this is a special thing. Everybody, uh, not everybody is musical. And so Johnny would learn songs, he'd learn to sing, and uh, learn chords and and so then it sort of fell to me to figure out what all the other instruments were doing and then teach all of our friends you know how to how to play which is sort of how i became a multi-instrumentalist so uh uh you know that that went on for a while until uh i mentioned that i that I played bass and then, you know, piano from a pretty early age after, uh, after ukulele. And then I discovered my dad's old alto sax up in the attic and, and discovered jazz. And like the first people that I listened to were people like, uh, King Curtis and Earl Bostic. Absolutely, man. Uh, and, and I loved Earl Bostic for for an alto player like he was the most rocking guy. And then, like you listen to people like to me like Louis Prima, like those guys were rocking, rocking, you know? rock like really rocking, really rocking. That's that's the, the genesis of rock and roll to me. Rather, than, you're right. Uh, yep. Bill Haley and the Comets. I mean that you know that that was. That was real rocking, and so I started to get into that. Then, then I discovered, you know, Cannonball, and then after that, uh, Charlie Parker, and realized, oh, Cannonball. I mean, <laughs> that's where it all came from. But 
and then a big part of Johnny was aware of jazz as well. Uh, and I think just in terms of speed and intensity, like uh, he would listen to a lot of the records that I loved and I in turn would listen to uh, like a lot of his. Uh, so, uh, but when I, when I really got intensely interested in saxophone, that was sort of a parting of the ways for a while. Uh, because like he, he knew that what I wanted to play wasn't going to really fit in, uh, you know, the style that he was playing. But I want you to, so I I want to, I want, I want you to talk, this is really interesting. you with the saxophone as a wind instrument and also just because of your pedigree and sort of your point of view and Johnny's point of view, he, it, it wouldn't have worked for, because in his music there wasn't enough space for dynamics or the horn for degree. Is that, is that why you guys kind of went? No, not, not completely. Go ahead. Yeah. Was, uh, uh, he had some saxophone players in bands. Wow. They were rock. They were rock saxophone players. I wanted to play uh, more complicated. That was a style that I was interested in more than the instrument. Like, really, like, if you think about, uh, probably sax is the most, next to guitar, is the most rocking instrument. Like, all the uh, Little Richard. Absolutely. uh, uh, They all had sax solos, fast domino, all those, like, a lot of sax solos in rock. But uh, I just happened to be interested in in jazz, and and I formed a little band, and we would play like uh, business and professional men's club, like where you were playing standards. Uh, but uh, I got to hear. Ta- I, I hope there are tapes. I got to hear tapes of that immediately. That's unbelievable, dude. What <laughs> you're playing standards, dude? That's like like how high yeah. the moon. It's unbelievable. Well, standards offer the opportunity because they have you know changes and you can sneak jazz into standards Absolutely. Uh, you know modify them in a, in a way and i continue to do that uh into young adulthood uh, you know i was doing i was doing that when johnny became famous still uh i was in a uh, i was playing in a club in houston called the golden fleece and then there there was a chorus line called the Golden Girls, and we were the band, the Golden Airs. We had gold jackets. Oh, this is unreal. <laughs> oh, my God. And I was playing, you know, I was playing <laughs> a, a lot of standards. Uh, uh, and, you know, I was just more of an instrumentalist. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't, I was never interested in becoming famous. I, I had started out to explain uh, the difference in Johnny's and my approaches. Uh, like, he had that dream of stardom, and for me, I, uh, like, he reached out to the world with his music. And, and, and in other words, he saw it, uh, it was partially a means to an end, but he he loved, like, uh, the fact that uh, that could make him popular. Uh, and the other thing, Johnny was not only my musical hero, but he was a living hero to me because he showed me that albinism, uh, rather than being a drawback or a disability, could actually be cool. I love this, dude. Yeah. You're making my you're making my year right now. Explain explain that to people because 
they it, we're so visual, you know, and that's the thing, man. Like growing up, you guys were it was much more of an autodidact or audio friendly world. Now it's all visual, so people are so hung up on the visual stuff. Explain how he turned that, how he flipped the script on albinism. Well, it, it just like you know, uh, little kids are you know they'll make fun of anything. Sure, if you're too fat or too short or too thin or you've got a funny nose right right it doesn't doesn't matter what it is uh and none of that none of that really matters but uh johnny just he he realized oh this is this is something unique and different and uh uh it just uh when he started playing guitar uh uh he stood out not only because of his great playing but because of the look and he was smart enough to realize that he could use that to advantage, uh, you know, which which he did. Uh, now, I, on the other hand, I just wanted to become a better musician. Uh, and I sort of withdrew into my own personal, private, little escape world. And music gave me a sense of security and identity it was something that i could do since i couldn't see well enough to do sports or you know play football or basketball but i could do this music stuff and uh so you know that's uh, the extrovert and i was the introvert and uh and when i uh i guess it was it was very cerebral and spiritual to me, oh, and I'll tell like one uh, to, just to demonstrate yeah. just my feeling about music. I was doing another interview, and this guy asked me the question, "What is your first memory of music?" And I thought, "Wow, that's a great question," because I didn't have an immediate answer because I had started playing music when I was six, so it was going to have to be way back there, and. Uh, what I finally came up with was this uh, experience, and this was before I could talk, but I remember being nestled in my mother's lap, and then this just experience of, like, beautiful, uh, I didn't know what music was, but uh it was just flowing over me, surrounding me, and I was just uh, swept away in this total rapture. It was just so beautiful. And I started squirming around in her lap. I didn't know what was going on, and I was able to peek up between her hands, and she was playing the piano. And then I could see her hands were making these beautiful, undulating, graceful movements. And then I remember thinking, oh, there's some kind of connection between these hands and and this sensation that that I'm feeling. And I, I want to get to that, you know. And, uh, and it was just uh, the most transcendent experience uh, that, and, and I think that it explains so much of my feeling about, music in general. When I think of music, I think of that warmth and security. I, I think of family. Uh, and uh, and it's such a spiritual, like that That to me, uh, because there were no words involved with it, it was a, it, 
it was definitely a spiritual mm. experience. And uh, and that's really what I've come to love about music, is that it lifts you out of yourself. Whether you're performing or listening to somebody that's great, like uh, when you're, you're taken, you're swept away in that moment, all your worldly... Uh, uh, all your worldly cares drop away and you're just totally uh, immersed in that experience right there in now. And and I think like that happens, uh, it's not just music that can do that, but like uh, sports people, you know, when they're in the zone, like anything that you become engrossed in or a scientist, like when... Einstein, you know, E equals MC squared, that uh, <laughs> Eureka or yeah. that aha moment, you know, that's, that's, that inspiration, you know, and it's the, it's the sense of feeling like uh, a connection, like a universal kind of connection that you're, uh, you become, uh, you are lifted out of yourself and you become part of something that's greater, you know, than all of that, and there you go. That's no. I mean, but as an as a patron for me, as a journalist, in the last few years especially, being in the front row of the cats that I've interviewed, a lot of my peers, my favorite bands, um, being able to get the natural sound of the stage sound, that vibration, yeah. that vibration gives me something called descarga, you know, spiritual discharge. Uh, in my brain where it's like actually heal it's healing it's it, it is completely healing and you know and uh, you know you can you can't get that uh, you, you can get that you can get off a little bit at a sporting event like that but collectively and that's what I wanted to ask you about is if you could talk about in your mind you know the antecedents the the keys for creating spiritual communal music uh, what, what would those be in terms of and and if you could talk about that first experience you had with a band when you guys were operating as one living breathing organism well it started uh it started for me with uh with playing music with johnny the love that we shared as brothers and uh that like we developed an almost sort of a uh, uh, telepathy, uh, a, te- a telepathic yep. communication. You know, right. between the two of us, we had learned to play together and uh, almost knew what the other was going to do. You know, before before they did it. Wow. So uh, that that was a part of it. Then you know, there was a magic of forming bands and and uh and going through all of that but for me the i like woodstock changed my life uh, and and that uh I'll, I'll explain like up to that point uh i uh sort of uh, music was very internalized for me and and i didn't like i just uh I heard people like Ray Charles and 
Stevie Wonder, and they were just doing these amazing things that uh, uh, that I was just totally in awe of, and you know, I, I wanted to uh, I wanted to be like that, and it, it had nothing to do with uh, with becoming famous. Totally. I just wanted to become uh, to learn as much about music as I could and be a better musician and hopefully be able at some point, you know, to get good enough to be able to like to uh, pass that on to others, that just that feeling of inspiration and exhilaration that, you know, when you hear somebody, that's great. But here, moving on like to the spiritual aspect of it. Woodstock. What was what happened at Woodstock? Yeah, Woodstock. Yeah, yeah. when we played Woodstock, mm-hmm. that was when everything changed for me because up to that point, I loved jazz and classical, and uh, uh, and I considered myself sort of a, a an instrumentalist first. You know, I really wasn't that interested in singing. I I loved to sing when when Johnny and I were kids to sing harmony, and you know, once in a while I'd sing a song, but. Uh, uh, I'll get into singing in, in a little while, but I thought of myself as a serious musician. Thankfully, I've gotten over that. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the first thing about Woodstock was the vibe. I mean, it was set against the social backdrop of civil rights and the peace movement, and there was like this feeling of unity, uh, uh, a very spiritual feeling Absolutely. that uh, that. Uh, People were there. It was something that went beyond music that we could make a difference somehow. And uh, the whole thing was just so chaotic and disorganized. There was no schedule. Uh, and uh, uh, But I had this feeling about it that this is something, that something special. I didn't... Uh, I had no idea uh, the prominence you know that that it was really like an event that was going to be of historic significance or anything, but I just knew it was cool. And anyway, like I was like passed out in a press trailer and wakened out of a dead sleep, and they were just looking for anybody that uh, that was uh, that was able able to play. And <laughs> there are a lot of drugs and stuff going on. And uh, so anyway, somebody shook me awake and said, oh, okay, you guys are on. So I kind of, you know, staggered, stumbled up <laughs> onto stage uh, with my weird morning kind of voice. I don't even remember what time it was. But we got out there and we started to play. And I just... I. I was looking out over this endless sea of humanity. It was just staggering. Unbelievable. Amazing. Unbelievable. And I said, what is this? How did I get here? What is happening? And it was just a transfiguring moment. Mm. Uh, and I realized, like, oh, music, it's... Uh, it's not just my own little personal private escape world, and it's 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 not even just the artistry and like the 
the love that you put into and all the hours you put into learning how to play, it's not just an artistic thing, but music has the spiritual power to actually reach out and bring people together, to unite these people in that unique way. And that is, uh, uh, that, like, after, it took a while for me to assimilate that and process that, but after Woodstock, I started to think about what it would be like, you know, to be an artist rather than just a musician. And, uh, and then my whole attitude toward music changed uh, as a result of that in uh, thinking, well, maybe all these feelings that I have, instead of just expressing them musically, uh, maybe I could actually write songs and write lyrics and, and uh, take it a step further uh, so let me ask uh, you: uh, Did did it? You said art. You said I, I thought about more about it being an artist than a musician. What about the idea of? Did you consider yourself potentially a very decorated multi instrumentalist accompanist? And then after that, you were like, "Oh, I could actually be a, a band leader." Because you 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 said you were kind of introverted. Yeah, uh, I. Um I was just thinking about the creation of music rather than... Can you talk uh, about I the difference? Yeah. I didn't relate it. I never have. I still don't. I don't think of music as uh, as a career hmm. Or, hmm. Uh, or a job. It has <laughs> never been that to me. Uh, and uh, I don't think that... Uh, uh, I think that's part of the... That same, I still feel like that same sense of uh, youthful adventure. You know, every time, uh, every time I get on stage, uh, and and to me, like uh, when I first started out playing, I didn't move. Like uh, I was more like the jazz guys that uh, I just stood up there and I was intensely focused on my playing and. Uh, that's all I was going to do. Uh, and then I started to uh, think, oh, well, it's rocking, it's rocking out. I mean, and then I developed this sense uh, not, um, uh, of jumping around and just having a good time. So it was like, it's more like kids on the playground of life, you know. Not, I'm not, I, never, I never thought of uh, trying to... Uh, particularly be entertaining, but I like that feeling of, of uh, giving it your all. And, and it's another way of doing that, not just through your music, but expending a lot of energy, working up a sweat. I mean, that's, that's about the only exercise I... I Dude, I love where you're going. Dude, this is, so, because I want to be honest, this is the whole connection between us is very spiritual because <clears throat> I you know, randomly going through my archives, I I put up this audio clip from, I've done many interviews with Billy Cobham, and he starts to talk to me about the Mahavishnu Orchestra and how a lot of cats, including people like Frank Zappa, never wanted to close for the, for the Mahavishnu Orchestra because um, 
you know, there was an ego thing going on. Uh, the, the, in fact, going back to Cannonball, the first time that uh, George Duke was in Cannonball's band and and, uh, and the Mahavishnu Orchestra opened the show, and after they finished their set, people were so spiritually aligned that everybody started to leave, flood for the leave for the uh, exits and you know know, i've never seen i'd love to have seen those. no so so i just want to finish this so he said to me he goes there's only two bands that ever opened and closed for the mahavishnu orchestra one of them solo taj mahal with a dobro singing songs and then he said edgar winter's white trash and i said are you, and that and then so one of your one of the cats one of your public the guy Sammy he he liked it he found it then he got me to Elizabeth then he got me to you and so to me putting that out in the ether it, and basically being a child on the playground of life man and the, the one thing I wanted to talk to you about clearly you were somewhat of a savant when it came to learning all these instruments but I want you to talk about the fearless quality of getting on the bandstand. Because you know what? You talk about working up a sweat. You talk about having a ball. You talk about having fun. You know, we're talking about major league cats that didn't want to close for the M.O., and yet there you are, the white trash band, rocking out. And I know Cobham was impressed by it as well. Was there a threshold? Not to say that you were ever intimidated to be on the bandstand, but can you just talk about how you learned to become fearless? Well, it was just, that's, that was who I was and Good. what I thought music uh, was supposed to be about. And to me, like, there's uh, uh, one thing that Johnny and I shared in common. Like, I used to think of Johnny as the, the Coltrane of blues rock. <laughs> he had this ability to uh, to extend a solo like and and make it uh, an endlessly inventive stream of conscious uh, stream of consciousness thing that would just build an intensity of Coltrane just like that yeah that's right right. he could play like course after course after course you know and you could higher and higher and higher and higher yeah Johnny, and, and that's, you know, uh, jazz, like improvisation in jazz, that uh, ability, you know, to, uh, to put yourself into that, into that mental state. And it is, uh, it is a fearless state because you're completely, uh, you're swept away in, in the actual doingness of, of that. So you don't have time, you know, to worry or wonder. Uh, I'll tell you somebody that, uh, that when I was playing with Ringo in his first all-star band and, uh, Sheila E Mm. was playing drums, like, and like, uh, he gave her a solo and she was completely fearless. She never played the same thing. Twice, Never played you know? the yeah, yeah yeah I love that I love it dude. she was just riffing yeah, yeah and and I I loved that because I uh, in all honesty like I love jazz but I'm uh, you know uh, and and I understand uh, 
I understand theoretically what all those guys are doing, but I'm, you know, uh, I just never devoted enough time to be a really, uh, sax- on saxophone, I'm pretty fluid in terms of soloing, but, uh, but those, those people are, I mean, it, it, let's just be very clear. It's a little bit too uptight. It's a little too serious for you. I mean, it's just not, I mean, come on. I mean, it, this is about, to me, jazz, especially in modern day. I mean, you go back in the day. I mean, Joe Farrell, John Coltrane. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking right now, but, you know, Edgar Winter. I mean, it was not this, like, this, this riffology, I mean, yeah, people showed off their chops, but it was more about, like, can you tell a story? Now it's gotten incredibly serious, and it, there's, like, you know, a lot of, you know, facility and technique is what you're measured by or comping somebody as opposed to just being yourself. I just, I look at it as you could have totally been a stone jazzer, but it wasn't that fun. It was kind of uptight. Well, I'm, I'm sure I would have been if yeah. it had it not been for Johnny. Right. I would have been a struggling job. Yeah, Johnny gave you a lot of grease, you know, a lot of grease. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't, I don't know uh, uh, how to express what happens. It just is uh, Absolutely. something that is innately present. Uh, in everything that I – I don't know any other way to approach music other than to completely give it your all. And, you know, it's astounding to me sometimes when I see people, like, doing sessions and stuff, and they they don't seem like they're that into it, you know? It's like, uh, uh, but everything, you know, whenever I approach uh, anything, whether it's going on stage, I mean, you never know, like, I try to take develop the attitude like to feel like it's the first time because everything is new and fresh and you approach it or it could be the last time you're ever going to have the opportunity to do that so i just try to think like uh every time i go out there it's the first and the last time can you i don't know did, how else to oh it's so beautiful i mean it, it, it it's you're a, you're a child on the playground you're on the bandstand of life really but i i just did you have closure with your brother uh, personally and musically the way you would you did it end on good terms? I just would love you to talk about that and also how you communicate with him today. Yeah, well, I still do. And uh, I think that this album, uh, Brother Johnny, uh, more than anything I've done and you know throughout my life has uh, helped. Uh, facilitate exactly what you're talking about. I, I feel like, uh, well, first of all, uh, Johnny may have departed uh, this physical plane, right. but his music, uh, his presence, uh, you know, his memory, all of that will live on in my heart as long as, as, long as I'm around. And I still talk to him every day mm. uh and i feel like i uh I, that i know him better in a sense after having made that record uh i met a lot of people uh who were closer to johnny than i realized and a lot of people that i had never met uh, you know there there are 
uh, a number of people. But, uh, well, first of all, you've heard that record, I assume. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, a lot of the people, well, just uh, Joe Bonamassa, Joe Walsh, Billy Gibbons, I, I knew those guys. Derek Trucks mm. and Warren Haynes mm. were two of Johnny's favorite guitar players. He loved the Almonds and, you know, when they were there. Uh, and I didn't know those guys. And uh, uh, Bruce, uh, Bruce Corto was, the, the, you know, the president of Corto Valley Records that put out the record. Uh, and, well, since we're, we're, we're getting into, into this whole thing, uh, I should explain that when Johnny first passed away, it was totally unexpected to me. And we had a tour that we were scheduled to do together, like called the Rock and Blues Fest, and we were going to play with our respective bands, and then there'd be jamming at the end. Right. <clears throat> and uh, uh, I was just devastated, mm. and I thought that uh, surely they're they're going to cancel this thing, but they wanted me to uh, go on and headline that show where, you know, Johnny had been headlining it. And, and I said, Oh, this is going to be strange and difficult and uh, highly emotional. But we, I, we, we went on and we did it. And after I played, uh, you know, Frankenstein that usually closes the show, I did like, uh, Hoochie Coo and, uh, you know, Jumpin' Jack Flash, maybe Johnny Be Good, I don't remember. We did a bunch of Johnny songs. And, uh, you know, uh, in in honor of Johnny, and, and it, it gave me a great source of strength and comfort to play that music. And everybody on the tour uh, was so kind and supportive. Everybody would get up to jam at the end, and it became a kind of tradition. And that sort of planted the idea in my mind. But then, I, shortly after that, I started to, uh, there was a lot of interest uh, from record labels and in, in doing a tribute album. And they would ask questions like, well, uh, how much is it going to cost? How long is it going to take? Uh, what guest artists can you guarantee? And I said, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I haven't even Yeah, it's not a priority. Yeah, I did. And it just felt like to me that these were just that, deal offers. Right. That it was business people sensing an opportunity to exploit Johnny's name and memory to just to uh, sell some records and hopefully make some money. And uh, I didn't want to be a part of that. So... Uh, I just became dead set against the idea of ever making a tribute album. I thought, well, you know, maybe uh, maybe Paul Nelson or Rick Derringer or somebody uh, will do that. It's not going to be me. And uh, uh, on top of that, I was just emotionally devastated uh, at that time. I, I was not equipped or prepared to make that record. I couldn't. I couldn't have done it. So I spent three or four years not making it. <laughs> and then finally, uh, like, uh, I was talking to my, to my wife 
Monique. And uh, this is really, the whole thing is an expression of love totally. for Johnny. Uh, and uh, over the years, I came to realize that it really, uh, the more people I talked to it was Johnny's loyal, uh, devoted fans that really wanted to see this happen. It just, just wasn't. Uh, it wasn't just business people. And uh, then uh, when we met Bruce, Bruce wanted to make this record for all the right reasons. He loved Johnny's music, and he just wanted to bring that music back to the world and, and possibly, you know, to, to all the people that were Johnny fans and to a new generation of people that might not be aware of Johnny and his legacy and what he had done. And so uh, I knew it would be emotionally difficult, and I, uh, I talked to Monique, Monique uh, and I incidentally have been married. I've been happily and blissfully married for 43 oh, years Bless now. you, brother. We have 44 coming up. Oh, uh, man. Ne next month. And, uh, you know... Without her love, encouragement, inspiration, and support, I never would have done it because I thought it would take a year. I never dreamed it would take three years, wow. but of course nobody knew about the onset of COVID at that time. Mm -hmm. And that, that changed everything. But, you know, she was just like absolutely definite. She said, well, you always talk about John as your all-time musical hero and you wouldn't be where you are were it not for him. Well, this seems like the opportunity to acknowledge that. And, uh, uh, you know, I think you owe it to yourself and to Johnny and to the world to do that. And she couldn't have been more right, you know, um, on every count. Uh, and, and it became like it developed into this obsession with me. Uh, I, I realized that for my own spiritual evolution, uh, that it was something that was really necessary for me to do. And like now after having done it, it was, uh, like I thought it was good. It, I knew it was going to be emotionally uh, difficult and involving, and uh, uh, but it turned out to be this just joyous, uplifting experience. And you know, after I after I finished it, uh, I just had this feeling of immense serenity, uh, peace. It was very cathartic very healing, uh, and uh, it's definitely a, a life-altering experience for me in that, like, and for it uh, to have uh, won the Grammy, I never thought that I would ever again have any music on the charts. For that to happen at this late stage in my career, in, in my life, uh, was just so unexpected, and what makes it so meaningful to me is that uh, it has that feeling of full circle closure that that you were describing. Because Johnny and I, th this is the music that we grew up on as kids. 
mm. and it's played in the in the style in the same style that we played in our early bands and uh when we played Woodstock, we were playing the blues that's that's what it that's what it was. Then our careers diverged you know johnny uh Johnny remained true to the blues and he he played rock, but it was always. Uh, blues rock and then you know I went on uh, to do entrance and then white trash and even assaulted the glam rock world where they only come out at night and now with brother Johnny it's back to the blues you know I love it's one of the best stories of closure he's obviously still with you deeply in your spirit. Um, I also would say that <clears throat> you have always, and Johnny as well, have always, I think you said it earlier about trying to open doors for other cats so that they can feel the same kind of thing that you did. And I just wonder, Edgar, if you could talk a little bit about when you got the memo so a lot of people that reach stardom, fame, and they close themselves off to the world for a variety of reasons, you know, and I get that. But there's just a lot of people that are like that have be- become very recognizable for incredible work, and yet they're very resentful. The phone doesn't ring as much anymore. They're not happy people. And I just wanted you to talk about when you got the memo about being a real human being. Because I have so many great interviews from Captain Beyond, Bobby Caldwell, or Rick Murata, or all these cats, that you guys, you guys opened doors for them. And, and, and you did it gracefully, and, you know, it, does, it, it was genreless. It had nothing to do with the music. It was about being a human being. And I wonder if that's always been with you, or when you learned to get the memo about being a real human being. Well, I can tell you, uh, I can, I can tell you most definitely, uh, well, let's see where to start. Here. <laughs> First of all, I got to mention, yeah. uh, you're, what you're talking about, uh, when I was talking about Johnny and I in childhood and, uh, his, uh, his drive and determination to become a, a, a star, uh, and he devoted his life to that. And after after it all happened, when that Rolling Stone article came out, and he he reached that goal, he achieved it, and he seemingly had everything uh, that he had dreamed of. He had uh, you know, fame, success. Uh, he had reached a, a like a, a point in his playing that was just amazing right and and he uh you know he had fame fortune money uh adoring fans and it wasn't what he expected hmm. and hmm. i remember i remember him saying to me oh edgar i never thought it would be like this he said i just feel so uh, so alone and isolated uh it's like I don't know who I can trust or 
really have anybody to talk to. And uh, it's as though there's uh, this image uh, of me that has taken over my life. and Nobody really knows or cares who I am. Uh, and, and he, you know, he went through uh, a very difficult time. And he was finally able to resolve that. And I think it was mainly uh, his love of the blues, you know, that uh, that pulled him through that eventually. Because, you know, he, uh, there, he had a sort of a musical conflict in that he loved the blues and uh, management and record company people uh would encourage him to go in a more rock direction. Totally. You know, and he was a great rock player, and I think he knew that uh, that that would that would he definitely uh, uh, his career would go further. But he, but he, but he didn't because he couldn't be truly authentic to himself. So it, it hurt yeah. him, though. Yeah, I did. And I and I know that, uh, like, to me, like Johnny Winteran was a great rock band i mean and it, it was so but like he i remember him saying like you know he felt guilty about uh about forming that band and uh and like he loved the old blues trio that he started out with uh he, even though in terms of individual musicianship uh you know johnny winter and i mean that that was really a to me, that was a great band. You know, Johnny, Rick, and and uh, Bobby Caldwell on drums, and uh, Randy Joe Hobbs on bass. You know, they they were really killing. Oh but, man! Uh, Johnny finally, you know, after going through drugs and rehab and all of that, and he came back stronger than ever, and he rededicated himself to to the blues, and uh, and he he really did. Like, he came to appreciate, uh, he loved his fans. Like, I've seen Johnny, like, invite people back, you know, to his bus or uh, the trailer or wherever it was and, you know, talk to him, you know, uh, let him take pictures, you know, shake hands, uh, all of that. Uh, Just be a real cat. Yeah, I love it. But he did go through that very difficult uh, disillusionment about, uh, about fame. And I did that to, uh, I, that happened to me, but I had never taken it seriously. <laughs> uh, I never pinned all my hopes on that, and it was never something that I wanted or looked for or expected. And so, uh, like, I, I just, I remember when at the height of my success, when Frankenstein was number one, and then somebody saying, well, how does it feel to be a rock star? Right. And, Said, well, it, I'm I'm completely the same. I haven't changed. Uh, uh, all of this is just based on uh, people's opinions. Which uh, uh, I mean, it, it's great to to be uh, recognized uh, in that you know that you know I'm very thankful for that, even though it wasn't what I looked for, but. Uh, then, like years later, after uh, uh, all of that subsided, then somebody would say, "Well, how does it feel to be a fallen rock star?" You know, 
I'd say, well, it doesn't feel any different than it did. Uh, I basically haven't changed. Those are just circumstantial uh, things surrounding who I am. I never put myself up on a pedestal to begin with, so I had no distance to fall. Uh, I just have continued doing, you know, what what I do. So now, finally, to get uh, to uh, answer your question, I like what I tried to express that that I was talking about Johnny's disillusionment in that in the song Lone Star Blues, you know that. Right. That, uh, and I didn't I didn't know Kevmo, but uh, Ross Hogarth. Uh, I have to uh, Ross and I made uh, that record, Brother Johnny, together. Ross loved Johnny's music and is just as familiar with it. Uh, and he just uh, uh, had so many invaluable suggestions and uh, turned me on to a lot of people, made suggestions for people like uh, that, that I never would have thought of, like uh, he suggested John McPhee to play slide on, on Highway 61. Wow. Uh, Phil X, who, uh, a Canadian, uh, he replaced uh, Richie Samburo and uh, uh, Bon Jovi. And, you know, uh, I I wasn't aware. I mean, he's just a madman. <laughs> guitar. I mean, just like when you talk about that... Uh, uh, Reckless abandon. Yeah, fearlessness. Kind of, yeah, over the edge. I love he it. He does. Ah. Like he, he, he does that. Uh, he suggested uh, Doyle Bramhall Jr., you know, to, to uh, do the tribute to Johnny. Like, to me, uh, of course, I might be slightly prejudiced, but I, Johnny, to me, is the best acoustic slide player, you know, uh, playing that authentic traditional Delta blues, uh, I, I never heard anybody that is, is equal at that. And in just that sheer blinding speed intensity and uh, that relentless kind of soloing that he does, that's those are things that, that separate Johnny that make him stand out. But uh, anyway... Edgar, I, 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 I am just... This is just healing me so much. I have a question for you because I got to well, go. I got to tell you about him becoming a human being. Well, no, I, here's but, I, no, but I want to ask you a question because I, I actually, is it? Can I reach? Can we do set two? Because I have to go to get my kids. I, we just cooked for seventy. Oh, yeah, we sure. just cooked for seventy minutes here, man. I mean, it was just like a freaking breeze. So mm-hmm. I'll get with Elizabeth and and maybe we. Can just set. We can do a set two next week or something sometime really soon because we have a lot more to get to. Okay. Well, uh, then we'll save. Uh, we'll save the becoming a human. Becoming being. it. We're going to we'll start with human being, there. dude. I you just can want ask me that question over again. And, you're and, darn right. And I just want to tell you, I just talked to Bobby Caldwell. He sends his love, <laughs> man. I freaking love the. I love the contingent that you guys did put together. I love the brotherhood. Um, and you really, it, you, you nailed it today, man. So I, I look well, forward. you know, you talked, uh, uh, I don't know if you were aware, Rick Murata played drums with me for a we're while. We're not going to, no, we're going to, we, I got a whole Bobby R- Ramirez story with Rick. We're going to get into that and said, uh-huh. we got a lot more to do, man. A lot yeah, more to do. Okay. Be cool, right, Edgar. Jake. And congratulations, brother. 
Hey, thank you so much. Keep... It's, it's, it's a beautiful, it's just an amazing thing that that, that I, uh, and we'll talk more about that too. So, hey man, keep having fun, keep bringing light to the world, baby. You know, all right, I will. all right, gonna keep on rock and roll. Later, man. Okay, bye bye. Be cool. Peace and love. All right, peace. Bye bye. Bye.